Revolution I can't get no call to action But I try and I try and I try and I try Hello and welcome to Call to Action the go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing and advertising. In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go, with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gasp, and I'm Giles Edwards, co-founder and MD. Today, I've caught Frederick Halberg. Being born in the most boring town in Sweden, Sherpin, propelled Frederick to leap into the world of computers and ultimately the internet just to find something interesting. Fast forward in time and he is now a seasoned marketing strategy director and management consultant with more than 20 years of experience consulting Fortune 500 companies, digital startups, tech giants and domestic brands. A popular speaker at many public seminars and lectures, Frederick has also just taken a brand spanking new position as a partner at the Commercial Works, alongside curator and editor of the brilliant Eat Your Greens, Wima Schneiders. Welcome to the show, Frederick. Thank you so much for having me. Straight into our quick fire. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Mac or PC? Mac. Winter or summer? Winter, definitely. Brand building or brand purpose? Brand building. Independent or network? Both. Zlatan Ibrahimovic or Greta Garbo? Probably both also from that question. And who's, lastly, who's your favourite Hoff? David Hasselhoff or Bob Hoffman? Ah, trick question there. Well, uh, Bob Hoffman I love, so no downer on him, but... But David Hasselhoff, well, that that made the teenage years seem more beautiful than they were. Yeah, totally. I'm with you on that one. Something I've mentioned on previous episodes, I think it's really reassuring for people to hear that talented people in the industry don't just step out of a shiny university or college straight into a shiny agency or job. So can you talk to us about your first ever job and also your first ever marketing job? Yeah, I can. Uh, the, my first ever real job, so to say, was house cleaning. Uh, I, I had a summer job uh, cleaning rooms for a big hotel in Gothenburg. And it was, I'm so admiring those people having that as a full-time work or full-time job, since that was probably the most terrible job I had or have had during my upbringing and during my whole career. Uh, so that was my first my first line of work uh, or professional work, so to say. And how did you go from that to the world of marketing? Well, that was a trick one. I was I was doing I was house cleaning at at uh, afternoons and weekends, and parallel to that, I went to the business school of Gothenburg, and at the business school of Gothenburg. I, I made a professor. I made acquaintance with a professor, and I remember his name was Thomas Grandal. And and the first day I met her, it was a class, and I, I came from industrial engineering and got really bored with industrial engineering. So I left the the school where they they taught industrial engineering and went to the business school of Gothenburg, and 
the first day when he stepped into the room and powered on his PowerPoint and were discussing or presenting marketing, I knew this, my life would change. That was a, a groundbreaking moment for me myself. That I thought, well, this is home. This is what I want to do. So every day after that day has been my life in marketing, so to say. And that's been about 20 years, is that right? Yeah, it's more than 20 years now. So so he was the one started it all. And he's dead now, uh, sorry to say, but he was the one that, that lit the torch in me, so to say. And then did you start by studying marketing further or did you go straight into a, a, a career? Well, I, I stayed with, with marketing for, for three years at the university and after that, I did some uh, extra courses in the University of Boulder uh, in the U.S. Uh, and where, there they taught uh, online marketing. It was the, my first acquaintance with, with online marketing. And this was back in the mid-90s, so to say. And um, when I got back to Sweden for my first, first job, I was one of the few, few people and few persons in Sweden that that had read anything about online marketing. So I got a I got job as an analyst at a media agency, and that quickly became internet analysis and internet strategist. And, and in several few years' time, I got to the status of, of internet guru. And that was just due to there were not that many people to go around. We were like 15 or 20 people in Sweden that had some background in online marketing. So that guru status was quite easily to get, get the reach of. Um, so, so it all started the ball rolling. And um, yeah, from that on, it's, it's been marketing and online marketing. And, and in later years, uh, I got also broader in my approach of how to relate to marketing and not just online marketing, but on marketing in general. Is that something that happened slowly over time? Yeah, it was slow. It was a, both a gradual and a quick process at the same time. Since when you talked about online marketing at the media agency, you had you had the people that you admired the most, and they were strategists at, at media agencies, and they were very very good at that time. And they always had some questions that you could. Uh, you try to avoid or try to dodge. Uh, <laughs> however, though, since you were an online marketer, they were easy to dodge since since nobody knew what you knew. So, so it was quite easily to dodge that. And and I had read uh, relationship marketing at the university. So I'd read Gröndal and uh, and Gröndros and Don Peppers and Marta Rogers, the one to one future and all that. So. I was quite sure that that I had my shit together, so to say. So I could, in a way, outmaneuver those strategic people at the media agencies by saying, well, you don't know how the future is going to be like. You haven't read this. You haven't read that. It's all, all going to be direct and it's going to be... And also, I, I had the background since I, I had read so much literature on, on, on those topics. So I felt qu- quite secure of of my recommendations and what I was saying. And uh, that came to a standstill or a complete halt 
Uh, and I think it was the late 90s when I was I was doing a, a seminar for the board of directors of Ericsson and Fortelia, uh, teleco companies in Sweden. We were out on an island called Sandham in the archipelago of, of Stockholm. And I made my presentation. It was the one-to-one future, basically. And I was I was very keen and I had the status of an online guru in Sweden. So I was pretty much confident in myself. And the people would say that I was standing on the Dunning-Kruger peak and I was at the furthest top of that Dunning-Kruger peak at that time. And I, I'm, I'm halfway through the presentation when an, an elderly guy at the end of, of the room, he raises his hand. And, and this is Östen Mäkitalo. It's one of the gurus in Sweden of, of producing the, 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 the three or the 2G and the 3G network system, so to say. So he was, he was kind of admired in Sweden and in Finland, and, and he had some status in that room, to, to say the least. And he raises his hand quite in a relaxed way. And he says to me, uh, and I, I, I put my hand to him and say, well, you have a question. Yeah, I have, he says. And uh, you, and he says, and he asked me like this, you haven't got to find a, a clue of what you're talking about, do you? So, so, now, so I was like, well, uh, I don't know what to answer to that question. I think I have. But he said, well, you don't. You don't know what you're talking about, and I have the proof to to prove it to you. And I I got so I just fell off that Dunning Kruger peak from, and and I tried to assemble myself from the pieces he shot me down into. Uh, and I, I remember going back from on the boat from that island, and I was thinking, well, what is the limitations of my knowledge? What what do I don't know since someone as experienced as he is can say to me straight up into my face that you haven't got the slightest clue of what you're talking about, do you? So so from the bottom of, of, of that Dunning-Kruger valley, so to say, I tried to build myself up. And it took some few years of, of, of coming back, really. But that was my wake-up call of... There might be a different world also outside, and it's not all to do with with online marketing and one to one and CRM and databases and emails and and stuff like that and relationships one to one with 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 uh, consumers. So, so that was my wake up call, and so it was it was both a slow process but also a quick wake-up at the end of that period. A sudden jolt. So your reference there to Dunning-Kruger and, and the Ian Pritchard, who's someone that we briefly discussed before recording this episode, it's a very similar tale to the one that he tells of him falling into that valley. And exactly as you say, you don't know what you don't know. Do you think that there's parallels to many, many others currently practising marketing? Yeah, and it's... I think we have a... We have a vo- vocabulary problem in general, both in Sweden and in general as well, is that people that have experience within the field of marketing, they don't trust their experience anymore. Since new people coming in into the industry, they're saying, well, nothing is going to be the same. Everything is changing. It's a new consumer coming in the market and all the old rules, they're not 
valid anymore. And so the elderly people, the people, <laughs> the people above 45, so to say, that's the elderly people in, in this industry. They don't trust their experience as much as, as they did. Uh, and since they're not putting up a fight with the younger persons, the younger persons having a, a free lunch or a field day, so to say, with with many of the Dunning-Kruger peaks. And, and, and I would say that the, the biggest issue we have to address in the industry is, is make older people talk to younger people and younger people talk to older people. Since, since collectively we got great experience, great knowledge, but we are trying to outmaneuver uh, each other in order to gain, gain a foothold in, in the face of the clients and so on. So, so uh, you need to respect both sides in, in many ways. And I think the most important part these days is that younger people need to realize that they have a lot to learn from more elderly people as well within the industry. And I think also Bob Hoffman, the other, not, not the, the first Hoffman, uh, the, the Bob Hoffman person, he also tells us this story over and over again. This is, if you look back into the history, you have much to learn from what made big brands big and big brands great. And there's a story to be told to the younger or, uh, people in the field of marketing today that, that <clears throat> the recipe that, that these builds were br- built on might be, be relevant still today. We need to identify why the old recipes shouldn't work anymore. But we, we ignore that and we just say nothing works as it did before, but we have no evidence supporting that uh, in the discussions. There's a great article which Ryan Woolman published with Marketing Week yesterday titled Adlan's Obsession with Youth yeah. Will Come at a Cost, which essentially mirrors that point. But the alarming stat, the average age of someone who works agency side, I believe, is under 35, Yeah, which clearly needs to change. Yeah, and we also we have the internal communication thing going on. Since when we do target group analysis and all that, we tend to, to specify the target groups as as people 18 till 54 living in city urban centers. And that's basically us. Yeah. Uh, and of course, that's easy to say many things about these people since we know these people by heart. We are those people. So we can relate to any detail that is on their these type of people's agenda. However, though, people over 50, we don't know that much about them. We don't know where they came from, how the world looked, what their drives were. And we are unfamiliar with their lives since we are not that type of persons ourselves. So, But these people are still, in some sense, inside of the ad industry as well. But they, they don't get the voice that they need in order for us to have a more balanced view of, of target groups, drives, the people's reflections of brands and how they relate to consumption. We always think that we have a cyborg coming on into the market and they're all digital and all that. And, and then that doesn't relate well to the, the, the reality of, of, of the majority of consumers and especially the, the number of consumers that have the wealth in many Western countries that are about mm. 45 years of age and they've, they paid off their loans and the, they have the spare time and they they have the wealth and, and salary to support that also. So so it it is an issue with the age 
the younger age focus within our industry, with the millennials, the Generation Z, the generation, well, every generation that comes up. Yeah, agreed. I mean, Bob Hoffman, you're right. He he talks on this and has done for some time. And there's a, a real gem of a stat that he circulated probably in a blog a couple of years ago. So it might be slightly out of date, but I doubt it's varied by much, which was that those aged 70 plus buy five times as many brand new cars as those age about, I think it's about 30 and under. Yet all car ads seem to be targeting the the 25 to 35 market yeah and also that's i think that that has to do with with many issues really is that first of all we target the people that are like us but also it's 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 trying to fill the funnel so to say in some senses is it's like well we 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 have those 50 plus people already so let's focus on the younger generation since we don't have them yet but Still, you need to influence the decision of those those people above 45. So you tend to forget, and this is the the biggest one of the biggest things from Airbnb Bass Institute is that we rent our customers. We don't have our customers. We need to refresh their memories. So you still need to reach those people above 45 and remind them of your existence all the time. So so that also makes the case that you can't just focus on the younger younger persons within the market and you need to address where the market is and and many of the the people above 45 there is still a very relevant target group and you need to refresh those memory structures as well so it depends on how you how you look at things but i think that the major part is that there is uh, a, wor- a world before their bus and the world beyond their bus and that's one of the biggest points is that you don't have your customers, you're renting your customers for now, and you need to readdress and address those customers on and on and on and continue to do that in order to keep just to, to stay on top of everything. The other point you made, which I'd like to pick up, is the point of people thinking they're always talking to themselves. I mean, I'm, I'm putting words into your mouth slightly here, but something which I think is the root of a lot of problems in our industry. And I don't want this, I don't want to sound so negative all the time, but it's the lack of market orientation, which is that you are not the market. So all of your thoughts, feelings and, and responses to things like advertising or price and packaging are not just incorrect, but they're actually very dangerous. You need to embrace that state of mind of, of almost just nothingness and then just fill that with research. We are very, very engaged since we work with this. Uh, it provides uh, food on the table and a house to live in. So as soon as you start working with the industry, you tend to lose sight of the customers outside. You get into this brand Christmas and, and the, the positioning and, and you, 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 you are very detailed and very nitty-picky of... of of uh, how should we present ourselves and all that. And, and you tend to forget that we are not as, at all interesting in the minds of the consumers. We are uh, a, quite of a minor annoyance sometimes and, and maybe a small amount of smile in the minds of, of them. But, but we are not that important. We have bigger issues on our mind when we go out in life. We have divorces, we have kids, we have schools, we have going to work, be at work at the right time and so on and so forth. So so consumers in general are not as, as detailed and so much engaged with brands as we like to think. And and 
as soon as we get on the right side of that that divide and we think more like consumers than we think of like ourselves that would be more beneficial for brands since that makes makes it uh, clear how hard it is to to just get noticed and get get the attention that you need in order to to affect those memory structures and, and and build your brand. So so as soon as you can get out of the nitty picky things and 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 engagement and rationalizing over rationalizing everything, I, th- that's that's better for marketeers in general. I would mm. say. Something that we discussed in episode two of Call to Action with JP Hansen, who I know um, you know well, yeah. was he, he said that marketing is increasingly seen as the colouring in department in some businesses. And a post that you made on LinkedIn fairly recently actually didn't mirror that sentiment light for light, but I think you put your finger on one of the big problems, which is that the concept of marketing is not just about communication and advertising. It's also about product development, pricing, distribution, and and customer response. Is that marketing mix, is that something that you think is changing or are we still too sidetracked with with comms? Yeah, Mainly discussions are about comms when you work in the industry. It's fun to work with, with those questions. And uh, you can have a lot of opinions of that also. And there are many new channels coming on. And, and one of the things that, that, that man, many, many of the discussions are about right now is the new channels that, that spring up every each year. Uh, you ha- now you have had Facebooks and LinkedIn and Twitters for a while, but you also had in Sweden, for example, we had Luna Storm uh, a while back, and and usually every year there is some new online phenomena. Second Life, for example, we had Second Life a few years back. So so as soon as something new comes along, it becomes a very interesting thing to talk about and and to discuss and to marvel about and and also where 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 when these platforms become very popular it's like well look at what we're doing and we do that and brands should be engaged on that platform and they should have a pavilion in second life and that's the new way to build brands and so of course since since it's always progressing and new things coming along within the comms part of the 4P, so to say, it refreshes the agenda that you have with your clients. You can always have a new, fresh perspective and have a, a trendy outlook. And you also have the, the technological advancements for R, ER and VR and then Pokemon Go's and stuff like that. So it makes you also as a presenter a very interesting person since you're top of new new shiny things so to say and uh, and we would like to be on top of new things we we don't we don't like to be backsided or blindsided by by new concepts new new platforms new new things since the worst thing we can experience that someone in a meeting asks you have you heard of this and you haven't heard of it and starting out, out as an online marketer that was the the main major thing that you made, you you had these meetings and you and you said to clients and you said to the other piece persons in the room, you said, "Well, have you heard of this? Have you heard of that? And do you know that this platform, this this um, MySpace or or this new platform has gained two hundred million users in just six months?" And and everybody was feeling, "Well, I'm not keeping up." 
uh, with the progress in the market right now. So that also made you as a person a more interesting one and, and you gained some, some, some status in the meetings by doing this. And at the same time, what was addressed were the other things that didn't get addressed, as you say, pricing, packaging, promotions, uh, distribution, uh, the other piece of, of the marketing mix. So, so those very important parts almost got lost in the discussions with the clients since we were too keen on and too fascinated about the new things that came along. And we also said, as soon as something new came along, we said, this is going to change everything. We still say, say that this is going to change mm. everything. Uh, Pokemon Go was to change everything, what, what was supposed to change marketing forever. And uh, that was three years ago, I think. So it didn't change everything forever. It, it changed some things a bit. But we usually tend to, since when they come, come along, we say, well, this might be the, the new thing that changed everything. And I think the digital tools predominantly are very alluring. I mean, most marketers are at least part magpie. So um, seeing the new glistening tech is, um, is appealing. But something which you've again said there, which I think is really interesting, is the concept of everything changing marketing, which is rarely true. In the same LinkedIn post I quoted earlier, you talk about mass communication, which really, I suppose, if you were to draw a a scale sits at the other end of highly targeted digital comms. So as someone who historically has come from digital, can you put a case forward for mass comms and mass advertising? So I'm thinking of what's perceived as traditional, like big TV ads. Well, I could do the opposite to start from. Okay, fine. And this relates to the background that I have with, with relationship marketing. Uh, Relationship marketing was born out of a business-to-business context uh, with, uh, with big negotiations with big organizations and with a very much personal feel and touch where you met the clients and you b- made big uh, proposals to those clients. And then it translated to from the industrial way of thinking also to to the service sector and that's where 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 I got into the market and and there were there was was a gap within the field of marketing according to Grandros and Gomeson and a lot of people Bates on in the US at that time that said well we haven't addressed what happens in the purchase occasion the moment of truth is when the the person is within inside the shop the store uh, in contact with a teller or a service desk we need to to manage that moment in time when they are entering the purchase uh, occasion when they they are facing the organization in person so a field of marketing got sprung out of that and and how to relate with empathy how to relate with with interaction and what to say and what not to say in that context of of a personal meeting with a marketing organization. So it got mapped and it got written a lot of books, but then came the one-to-one future with Don Peppers and Marta Rogers. And this was the beginning of the mid nineties. And it addressed how these concepts with relationship marketing would also 
fit the new tools that were coming along with with email marketing, websites, um, and uh, dynamic interfaces with those websites. So the one-to-one future really became a tool for for deploying and implementing the relationship context or concept of of, of marketing in, in the media, so to say, since it was this was digital platforms. And it started from that. And as soon as email came along, we tried spam for a while, didn't work. Um, but but then we got into permission marketing and permission marketing also became the CRM part. And, and CRM was one thing. And it, it, it stood in the beginning for customer relationship management and the managing of, of employees when they met customers. But it soon became... CRM as in uh, customer relationship marketing and we were using the one-to-one possibilities of email marketing to with permission marketing to consumers and that really started the ball rolling and this was the mid-90s and then came the social platforms and then came Google and then came the one-to-one marketing at scale so it it was pretty much uh, born out of of uh, the relationship marketing concepts that were placed within the organization when the customer were, were facing the organization. But now we lifted that, and this was my Dunning-Kruger peak as well. I lifted it out, these concepts, I lifted out to mass marketing and saying mass marketing is... Is, is waste and it's 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 not addressable and it doesn't relate to you as a, as a in a relevant way with an offer that suits you. So we just lifted the concept of the personal meeting out into mass media, and that is why we got into trouble. Since as soon as we lifted it out from from the personal meeting in the broader in the broader market so to say we got into man, many difficulties with the deploying and, and applying these concepts so so it was a it was a line that needed to be drawn must much more steady fast in the ground and say well you can have that within and this, this was like um professor and lecturers like parasuraman saitam lemberry very very funny names of, of, of researchers and professors and lecturers, but but we deployed those concepts outside in the mass marketing and the mass communication uh, perspective, and the relevance and the 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 way of, of using that perspective outside of, uh, didn't make it as beneficial as we wished, so to say. So you couldn't just pick it up outside of relationship marketing in that context and then apply it somewhere else and expect it to have the same results, basically. Yeah, that, that's that's a wish. That's more of a wish. And and also relating to the, the, the Ehrenberg Bass Institute, uh, there, there's, there's still a wish of, it's a hope that that if we make more relevant ads and relevance to say we, we make ads based on your profile we will get more effective advertising and and so far the the results are not that promising uh since there are other factors more 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 way more important than than just 
having the direct mail, so to say, with, with, with customers, there are far more bigger issues that needs to be addressed with distinctiveness and, uh, and people remembering that and, and uh, being emotionally touched by, by, by what you're saying. So it isn't that easy. And, and it, it, it's a wish and a hope and an ambition that we have had with, with how to innovate within marketing communications is that to use the concept of Don Peppers and Marta Rogers in the broader context. But so far, the results have not been that promising. And I guess that's just human instinct to a point that you think you might have found a shortcut or made something easy, which is why so many are quick to adopt these quick win type tactics. Yeah, and we have also... And this is a question, really. But but when we when we measure things, also we tend to measure things. Since we said that digital is easy to measure, you see what happens. Who's who's receiving the message? How they relate to it? What link they click on? If they what page they land on? How they convert and with what product they buy? So we said that. Digital is, is more effective since you can tell what happens. But but digital is also the, the the last click or the last view attribution problem. So in the dashboards that we have, it looks beautifully uh, usually, but that, that has to do with the last view attribution and last touch attribution and last click attribution. And you're basically looking into the cash register of your organization and you can't tell why these numbers are here. You can just say that they are here and you just relate to them from the doorbell to the shop, so to say, since, since the doorbell is last click and the last view. Uh, so usually with those attribution models, you say, well, it has to do with the, the link on Google. It has to do with the last click attribution on that banner ad and so on and so forth. But the ad stock that you have built for several years and the habit of people buying your product for several years, you don't take that into account. And the real danger of this is that you get into baseline attribution. You attribute the whole baseline to the online communication. And, and the numbers look great, but you are like, it's like frag stealing if you play Counter-Strike at some time. Someone else would have done the shooting of, of, of the, the foe, and you just have the last shot on that. And you say, well, it was due to me. I, I, I killed the, the opponent or the foe in, in Counter-Strike, but it was all due to those previous exposures that ad stock that had been built up throughout the years and the habits that had been established within the consumers and and you got got the last click or the last view attribution of that so so you're capitalizing on 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 uh, attributing the, your baseline sales so to say yeah it's like someone scoring an easy tap in in football and you don't actually appreciate all the work that went from taking the ball through the goalie to defence to midfield, you're just looking solely at the conversion rate of the striker. I know with um, when you talk about, um, especially the last, last click attribution, 
I forget which piece of research he cites, but I've heard Bob Hoffman give this talk live and he also blogged about you're more likely to complete Navy SEALs training than you are to deliberately click a banner ad. And I think that's that's true of so many people. Certainly the most recent mobile ads I've clicked on, it's because I've been trying to close the bastard thing down and I've accidentally clicked on it. Now, the person who then sees the analytics gives some sort of value to my click. And yeah, on paper, it looks like one click. Yes, there was a click, although it was unintentional. But equally, that, that clicks had a very negative effect. Yeah, and and it's very easy to do so. I made all the mistakes that anybody can make in this industry. So when we first installed the Google Analytics uh, suite, I think it was more than 10, 15 years ago now, I was like, well, when we opened the account, the first day we opened the account for clients and we started the AdWords account, we saw the numbers and we saw the numbers and it was, it was amazing. We, we saw the clicks and we saw the, the, the conversions, we saw the revenue, everything like this was generating. What we didn't think of, many of us, my, myself also, is what, well, what did it look like yesterday then? Did, did all these things realize today just by opening the Google account? Where, where did everything come from? Did it just, was it like, well, we, nothing happened yesterday. We installed Google Analytics today and everything happened today. Was it like that? But you got blinded from all those numbers and thought, well, this is excellent. And also, since it was a last-click attribution thing going on, you could also say, well, the ROI is amazing. Look at the ROI with your paper. And back then, you pay, paid two kroners a click. I don't know how much that is in cents, but it's, it's not that much. So, so we didn't pay as much also. And, and the ROI was almost endless. And we said to clients, well, look at this. It's, it's amazing. You've done this uh, bro, big, broad, wasteful way of advertising before. Now we can, you can have it specified, you can have it measurable, you can have all this. And, and look at the numbers. They're amazing numbers. And, and you see it in, in, your, in your cash register, so to say. And so, so it's very, very easy to get, get blind when you look at numbers, since numbers yeah. make it so real. But the mind doesn't think of where did those numbers come from, really. And that was one. Mm. You need to go through that mistake, I guess. Yeah, it's important to to make mistakes. It's important to fail. It's something I spoke about with Vicky Ross in our last episode. How important it is. Otherwise, um, otherwise you don't you don't learn. You don't learn. But the numbers is a is a is an interesting thing in its own right. I mean, not least because of the the scale of online ad fraud, which is 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 significant. There's a CNET report recently which which claims that. Only about thirty-eight percent of web traffic is human. Yeah, which really demonstrates the the scale of fraud. But similarly, if we are thinking about analytics, which are available to us on social media platforms, and you know, you're well based for this one, but Facebook last year, perhaps the year before, claims that they could reach one and a half million Swedes between the ages of 15 and 24. The problem here is that Sweden only had 1.2 million of them. Yeah, and that has to do, it's, it's, that has to do with many things also, since, since it's the, the data from Facebook itself. But in general, we have another question also, is that we don't usually differentiate between impressions, 
unique users and people. Uh, and this might seem like uh, like an odd question and an odd way to, to describe it, but people say, well, we have this many unique users uh, on our website, so to say, for example. Uh, and we say, well, is that people? Yeah, we guess so. A few years back, we had 54 million web users in Sweden in a month. And we are 10 million people living in, uh, in, in Sweden. So how, how could we have 54 million web users? And that, of course, was the web users are browsers. It's not people. Uh, and still, that, that problem lingers around is that we don't separate between users, as in people, and unique web users, as in web browsers, and even impressions, gross impressions, net impressions. So, so, And it has also to do with the vocabulary of the industry. It's a very difficult vocabulary. It's very hard for clients also to know what's the difference between this and that. And people usually say like, well, I have a, we have 10 million or, or say 5 million unique users. Well, isn't isn't that to over-describe things? Aren't all people unique? So how do you need to put that word inside of that sentence? Unique unique people, unique users. People are unique. But, but since there are web browsers, it's unique web browsers. So um, that, of course, makes it a relevant metric, so to say, to divide it from people. But we tend to ignore that it's not people. It's uh, and we th- say that it's people, and and uh, and not taking account that it's just web browsers. And there w- that there have been problems with that with with the traffic measurements of websites when when they're saying we, we are reaching these amount of people, especially now for for Instagram followers or blogs or stuff like that. People say, well, we have t- we have two million people um, following us when it's uh, in reality it's web users or browsers and since you can have four or five browsers yourself those numbers tend to get very exaggerated so to say there's arguably a need for for social medias to be to be regulated there's lots of lots of people marking their own homework and it makes it very difficult to understand or, or compare yeah you have these walled gardens all the time and we have had them for for more than 20 years now in different shapes and, and, and at different organizations and and third party measurements is really really important since they quantify and and make the impressions or the media buying more valid so to say and at the moment, sometimes it's more like buying the pig in a basket or the pig in the sack, so to say. We don't know what we're buying, but since it's shiny, we like it. But as a metric, as a buyer, as, as a serious buyer of, of media space, you're, you're not buying the... You are not allowed to be buying things that you that aren't verified uh, in a certain way, so you can be sure that we are really making this money work for for the client. Mm. Just going back uh, quickly to the work that that you do and and will do since your very fresh appointment with the commercial works. Is it common for you to have this conversation with clients? Do you have clients who come to you and perhaps they have also been placing too much importance and, and, and resource in what can be demonstrated or perceived as ROI with digital analytics and then take them back through the more, I hate using the word traditional, but I suppose that the correct really marketing processes? 
Yeah, it's uh, it's not uncommon. It happens all all the time. Since and I would say that's that's part of what we do as 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 media or media strategy consultants is that to to identify the gaps, identify the the things that can be improved, and and in many times it starts with the the wrong side of the attribution funnel, so to say, is that that people have reports, they have data, they have huge amounts of data, and and they they try to make sense of it of of how do we improve. Since now the costs of of online marketing is growing at a steady pace and it has been growing since I started. Back then it was like two two to ten percent of the whole budget. Nowadays it's more than fifty percent of the budget, and that is not including the tech fees, the personnel costs, and all that. But the working media spend it's still more than fifty percent of the budget in many instances, and. Mm. People and, and clients usually want to get the best out of their investments. They want to invest as little as possible with the maximum effect as possible. And, and in order to do that, you need to backtrack where do the effect come from. And if you just look inside the Google Analytics suit or any other suit for that matter, it's usually, well, this is the results of many other things that come before that. And you need to backtrack with, with the measurements where where can we find the, the source of the demand that you are experiencing since if we don't backtrack of that we might go wrong in what to do in the future as well so so it's it's looking at the the whole customer journey so to say but it's usually much more extended than than people working solely within digital tend to think it's that the, the customer journey usually starts and it could start several years before they finally get into purchase occasion. And that is also my, one of the, the major benefits of the Ehrenberg Bass Institute is that, or, or with Andrew Ehrenberg himself, so to say, is that you have mer- very, very many seldom buyers. So, so in order to affect the decision, that process usually starts several years before they get to the purchase occasion since they are a seldom buyer. And those exposure, exposures still count, but they are not measured in real time with the dashboards that we use. So so it's looking at the, the complete customer journey, not, not just the, the, the purchase occasion of that journey uh, on the bottom, bottom funnel of the whole process. So... So that is one of the main things that we need to do as both advisors and, and, and consultants and also advertisers as well. We need, to, we need to address the whole customer journey and see, well, doesn't, doesn't these investments also produce any kind, kind of effects? And when are those effects realized? Are they, are they, are, are they um, realized right now in real time? Or do they have an effect that slowly build up over time due to many exposures in, compa- in comparison with other exposures from competitors also? So it's, it's a more long game, uh, long run or marathon, so to say, than it is a sprint. And we are very keen on sprinting and we need to address that this, this, uh, this battle of, of, of people's mindset, so to say, is is like a marathon, and we need to plan that marathon accordingly to to making making able to go the distance.
One of my favourite stories which supports exactly what you've just said is from the uh, the wonderful Tom Goodwin who talks about finally being able to afford his dream BMW sports car in his mid-30s. And he puts that down to it when he was approximately eight years old and he was doing a school project and he wrote to various car manufacturers and not big car brands and BMW were the only company to respond and they sent him this this lovely pack of beautiful print brochures about their cars and ever since then he obsessed about owning one where's the attribution there he, he knows that in his lifetime subsequently he has probably clicked on a web banner ad and someone has claimed full credit for him finally acquiring the vehicle but it's just a you know a very simple example of that last click attribution. Yeah, and he, he's pretty humble with his ambitions, like a BMW. I had a Lamborghini on my wall. <laughs> Maybe just more realistic. It was a YouTube movie called Gumball. Uh, oh, what a movie. Yeah, and uh, and yeah, it was a great one. It, that was the fastest car ever made, and, and I wish to have one. Uh, and I don't have one still. And I probably never will get one either, but it's still my dream car. But again, that's a brilliant point because, um, I mean, we're, we, as, as well as you, I know, are huge fans of the work of Bennett and Field, the long and short of it. Mark Ritson wrote a great article recently where he says it's not just the long we should be thinking about, it should be the long, long as well. So your reference to Gumball is exactly that. That's now in your head. And I don't know how many years it is, 25, 30 years later. Yeah, it's more than 30 years. So, so those exposures and those experiences, they build up over time. And eventually I will probably, if I'm totally lucky and win, win on the lottery, I might get that car. But, but and it, yeah. it's built on a dream, on a dream wish that I had when I was a younger kid. So it takes a while for, for things. And not everyone is, is on the... the the market at the same time at the same moment and we tend to forget that also is that especially for cars there are not that many people buying cars every day but during a period of 10 years there are many people that have switched cars they bought a new car during the period of time and we need to have that that type of focus when we, when we talk about marketing investments it's, it's a very long game a very very long game for, for many products and especially for for uh, products as cars yeah and, and luxury cars too it's it's important that people who can never afford them are also aware of them because that means when you can afford them, you can drive them around feeling proud that everyone knows that you can afford one yeah, and they can't. What's the point in having a car that nobody knows about? <laughs> exactly. If, yeah, exactly. If you show off, then it's no use whatsoever. No, no one knows. Well, what's that strange car running around on the streets? We don't know. But if a Lamborghini or a Ferrari or a Porsche or whatever car it is, well, you could say, well, I had the money to buy that, and it's uh, it's due to my own insecurity, and, and I won't. <laughs> but people still need to know what it is about. Uh, same with with handbags, electric goods in general. Uh, they have a much more broader audience than those just that just buy it. Yeah, so that's it's a whole status symbol thing, isn't it? Now, asking the general public for their opinion, be it on Brexit or boat names, is notoriously fraught with danger, but that's not stopped us asking listeners for some questions to put to you. So I was going to ask you two, 
However, I'm wary that Rebecca's question, which was, do most marketers lack market orientation? We've answered that really. So I hope Rebecca's happy with the answer that was given earlier. So I'll jump straight on to uh, Mark, who I actually work with. And he's asked, I watched your presentation called The Dedicated Consumer's Death on LinkedIn, which featured the Pepsi Refresh Project. Yeah. In light of Pepsi, again, getting all caught up in brand purpose some seven years later with the awful Kendall Jenner ads, do you think big brands have been sucked into a brand purpose black hole up their own backsides? And how can we get them out? Yeah, it's a good question. The Pepsi Refresh case back in 2010 it's it's like nine years ago i guess nine well yeah and it was the same time as jim stengel wrote that book grow so the brand purpose thing was really on top of everybody's mind back then and it was also where social media made big inroads with with the with the perspectives on marketing and that I think that case still lingers around. It, it's it's almost like Groundhog Day. <laughs> I usually say it's more, almost like Groundhog Day. The same question keeps popping up again and again and again. And the Pepsi Refresh also seems the Pepsi Refresh case seems to be refreshing itself all the time. We're still stuck in that case in many senses in many ways. So. So of course we have this brand purpose again, and and there's been, as as you know, it's been a lot of discussions of brand purpose and brand this and brand that uh, in the public media and on Twitter and on Instagram and and, and all those channels that the, the industry is hanging hanging about and hanging around on. I think it's due to mainly that that we like to make a big difference. We like to make advertising count for real, and and that is. Uh, and also comparing with each other's within the industries that while well, we have a purpose, we have that we have have more ambition than just reminding and refreshing memory structures and and making people buy products. And we should also remember that sales many times is not perceived as very beautiful or elegant by the marketing community we we say we we do more than just sell products uh so so being able to to go into areas where 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 we can have more purpose than just selling things is also beneficial for our own status so we are very very keen as an industry of of getting into this more more than life purpose things uh, in order to prove our value to to ourselves mainly, but also to our clients and and make differences in the way that that uh, they can uh, hopefully at least smell the the taste of making big differences. Uh, so and it also translates to uh, breaking down and and rebranding things all the time repositioning rebranding getting rid of the old distinctive assets and bringing in new distinctive assets and all time all the time refreshing 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 since we want to to have quick progress make big impact uh being being more worthy than just selling stuff so it has to do i, I would say more than the it's not just brand purpose it's the way we as a community approach what we're doing and and we 
we'd like to be on on top of almost larger than life itself sometimes and in that strive we make a lot of problems for the brands that we manage since we're we're destroying what has been built up over the years and making ambitions and claims that that might be too far-fetched for many brands and also have no correlation or causality whatsoever on sales was that an answer you think it was a good answer and and i think um i i rarely defend brand purpose in any shape or form but i think it is fair to say that again it's a it's, i suppose it's a noble thing to want it's whether it, it it should exist in the context of what you you know your company or your brand is the more relevant question for a marketer um, and i think in most instances it doesn't it doesn't play a part unless unless of course your brand exists in a space which has a very and real authentic brand purpose like say the body shop for example yeah and also it's it's due to, it's due to many things but before we jump into the brand purpose thing we need also to to think of might there be things that are more effective on sales this was the most effective thing to do then of course do it but if there are other things that are more effective in driving sales then we should do that instead but that is not the question put forward by by many of us within the industry we say well brand purpose is a new thing brands need to be purpose driven and all that and and of course everything has to do with sales so if that would translate to sales at a better pace than anything else then of course it might be a suitable way but before we could jump onto that we must first conclude that that is that is of all the options the most optimal way of how to relate to what we should say when we say something to our consumers and that question is never opened i would guess since since brand purpose has made itself like almost like an ivory tower these days it's it has to do with 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 the the environmental things and all that and brand purpose and stand for something more than just making good products and it's also to do with that we have workers in the third world and all that so so it's a kind of a sidegeist thing also at the moment is that it's it's politically correct to have that but uh, since we as as organizations mainly is about uh, making people pleased with the products that we sell and making people buy us and not the competitor when they're entering the the the, um, the market then we need also to see are there options to brand purpose when we speak of how we should address our consumers yeah i think you've hit the nail on the head there if it's going to be the most effective then we should do that but things are very rarely binary and i think that therein lies the problem those pushing brand purpose as a, this is the new thing it's it's always at the expense of everything else there's there's very rarely a blend or a mix um and and nothing is black and white there's all sorts of grayscales and and typically a mix of activity is going to be more effective than just plowing all your resource and efforts into one yeah and also uh, if you look at this perspective if everybody's saying the same how distinctive are you everybody goes for the same social issues 
you get no distinctiveness whatsoever. Was it from this brand or was it from that brand or was it from the third brand? And usually those purpose things are very overarching or, or very broad. It's like uh, employees, it's like environment, it's like... And I'm not saying that the, the environmental thing is a bad thing, but usually it tends to get it like the differences between brands get to get blurred when everybody is saying the same thing. So so we need to be very, very careful when we jump onto the brand purpose thing in order to, to stay distinctive and, and relating to other brands. So so there is a danger. And and within our industry, we need to address the, the dangers also. Uh, for example, online marketing. Nobody has had discussed extensively what drawbacks they are uh, within the market, uh, how attribution get wrongly, the bot traffic, the viewability problems. It took 20 years for the viewability problem to surface. It, it was like that. It was like, well, now, 20 years later, before we started doing banner ads, 25 years later, people started to ask, do anyone see those ads? Yeah, yeah and it's kind of amazing. But as soon as you start making curious questions or maybe criticizing a bit you get you get perceived as a old man on a hill uh, with bread and, and and being well it was better before and old media is better and uh, everything like that and and nobody especially not i want to be perceived as an old timer i'm just 47 uh, but that that type of thing lingers around so we don't ask those quit, critical questions when we are faced with the new phenomena, with the new media, with the new, new shiny things. And, we, and I would guess that as an industry, we need to be more keen on being more curious and, and asking, well, how, do you know what you're saying or, or are you just making things up as you go along? And what, what are you basing your statements on? Are they based in sound evidence or just based on what you've heard on the latest seminar that you went to? So, so, and I usually say this in podcasts and, and, and uh, having my public presentation, I say, well, as a community, we need to be more skeptical about things all the time. And not like mm. we are skeptical in the sense that we're not curious. We need, we need to be curious as well and see, well, it might have potential, but are there what what benefits are there and what drawbacks are there and we need to address both those two questions when when we when we face a new opportunity a new channel new media and 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 address the new media in in from both perspectives and not being afraid of being perceived as an old man on a hill or on the in the woods that's just sitting there <laughs> wishing that we were back in the stone age but as soon as you start to have critical questions then people say, well, don't you believe in this? Don't you believe in that? You are the old timer. You just wish that everything was like it was before. Well, we need to have new channels adding on on the top of old channels, and they need to be addressed at a critical way so we can utilize them in the most profitable way for our clients. And that means being open and curious and also asking many questions of it. So so that is the take I usually have. Well, this is exciting. What 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 drawbacks are there? What what benefits are there and and also what what uh, obstacles are there and what what might be the dangers with this new channel? And let's let's look at it and see how it performs and if it doesn't perform well, how do we fix that? Uh, 
performance what what was the lack of performance due to but you need to be curious and and, uh, and skeptical of things in order to improve things and to be frank in the last 20 years the progress had been quite slow in many senses since some banner ads have just got, gone bigger uh online video still looks like online video uh, people are still saying we need to have the branding early on in online video. Why, why isn't that branding on early on in video? Uh, we have said that for more than 15 years now. You need to have branding very early on in the short clip. Uh, still, uh, it's a mixed result when you look at the outcome of, of what's being produced. Sometimes there is no sender, no ID of of that video clip so so as soon as people just follow on and and not being cri- not criticizing the things being produced not being curious then then people don't progress and you need to have some kind of of um, in order to get strength you need to have resistance and s- resistance is what keep things progress but we need more resistance from our own industry in order to have quicker progress within the industry. And that's basically what I'm usually saying to, to the people I speak to. Yes, wise words, echoing a point you made earlier about brand purpose. If everyone else is doing it, then how are you going to be distinct? That's typically the reason why we say never follow trends. Yeah. We've got four questions, our pertinent posers, Frederick, that we like to put to all of our guests in the final part of the interview so so question one is is what advice would you give to your younger self don't take everything so serious uh usually you think when something goes wrong that that would be the end of the world uh it usually isn't (laughs) we don't know tomorrow Uh, and uh, don't think that that people will will look at you in a, in a worse way by by doing saying some things that that's that's not landing in the way that that they you would expect would be the most optimal way. Um, so so don't take yourself too seriously and don't take things that you do too seriously. You will have days that are better than others. Uh, and don't get too bogged down into the bad things you're feeling. There will always be a tomorrow, and that learning you can utilize and 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 stay alert and stay happy and 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 focus on on the on the ride, so to say. Focus on the uphill and downhill ride. Uh, it's a roller coaster and it's a journey you're on. And uh, if you tend to get bo- too much focused on the bad things, you're not experiencing the good things. And that would be what I, what I would say to my younger self. Don't take life too seriously. Enjoy the ride. Yeah, that's good advice for everybody. Number two, then, if you could banish one thing from the industry, what would it be and why? Oh, banish one thing from the industry. Oh, that's a tricky one. Um, I would say jargon and and uh, and uh, buzzwords. Uh, I, I would I would like to have those removed, since since people are using and if you look into many pitches, if you if you're familiar with with working with pitches and you get the briefing from 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 clients sometimes, and you can't you can't see what it's you can't read what it's saying. It's all the buzzwords are included, and it's like. 
we try to communicate with ourselves through buzzwords, engagement and, and, and things like that, and nobody knows what you're talking about. And content, for example, we need to have a content strategy. What is that? And we need to have, we need to have engagement. What is that? And so be specific, more specific, more concrete, more precise with what you're meaning and what to, what to be achieved and use common language. Since if anyone from out our industry would enter this industry and we handed them these documents, they wouldn't understand a thing. So we tend to get very, very, in order to impress ourselves, we tend to use a language and a vocabulary that's almost unreadable to anyone outside. And communication is about making yourself understood and what you're talking about. And we're doing a terrible work of doing just that since no one in the board of directors room and nobody outside of marketing knows what we're up to. What do the guys at marketing do? I don't know. They make fluffy presentations with words I can't read and understand. Well, that, that's not the way to get the mandate inside the organization. I couldn't agree more with the common language thing. It drives me mad. I think it's uh, attributed to, to Einstein, isn't it? He says, uh, if you can't explain it to a six-year-old, you don't understand it yourself. Yeah, and that's totally true. Since, since if when you start in marketing, it's all very, very, very hard. And it's like a big fluffy cloud, all of that. And nothing is connected. But but as soon as you start to learn more, you can start to express yourself in a more simple language, so to say. And usually in the end, it's like if if you don't reach anyone, you can't convince that to influence that person. So reach is really important just by saying that. Yeah, absolutely. Are there any books that you would recommend is our number three? Yeah, now we're back to the, to the old Hoffman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would recommend anyone starting in the industry to just start reading Bob Hoffman and they will have a blast and they have a great time reading his books. Yeah. Um, so so reading Bob Hoffman is, is a great enjoyment on me. And I would also recommend, and I guess that every every person on the show has talked about this, read, read uh, Dave Trott, read uh, Byron Sharp, read those kind of, of literature that, that you find on the top list and and also tend to to read books that are about human behavior in general since what we are about is to influence human behavior and then you have no drawback whatsoever in, in trying to to understand what what makes people tick and, and how do they decide um, and uh, D- Daniel Kahneman, Cass Sunstein, Richard Taylor, read the hard books as well and not just the easy books, you know, to get a broader perspective on, on the field that we're working in. Absolutely. The last question or request really is we always dedicate every show to someone and we like to or we bestow that honour to our guest who also has to give their reasons why so frederick can you dedicate the show to someone please yeah i would dedicate the show to thomas gröndal the one my first professor that unfortunately died uh when i was still young but uh he was one of those persons that i met that made this topic that we're discussing today of great interest of me just by his passion himself he had great passion with the field of marketing and that lit my fires as well. So if I would dedicate 
my my talk with you to anyone, it would be Thomas Grandoff. Fantastic. Brilliant. Thank you. So as a final call to action, then please, if you've enjoyed this episode, if you head over to our podcast homepage, we'll share links to everything that we've discussed in the last hour. How else can people get more Frederick Halberg? Yeah, what I usually do these days that I use my LinkedIn page as my blog. I find the format of LinkedIn, people are always saying Twitter uh, within industry. But I'm, I'm not uh, that keen or that skilled in using those few words that are included in Twitter. So I usually stay, stay with, um, with, with LinkedIn and it suits me fine. Uh, and apart from that, uh, the website, the commercial works, that's a way to get, get in contact with me also. But if they would like to follow me, LinkedIn would be the best. And uh, I po- post links to things I find interesting when I'm out there, when I have this bad time of, of thinking of things relating to our industry. Good stuff. Okay, well, we'll, we'll, we'll stick a link there too. Uh, so thank you so much, Frederick, for joining us. It's been a real honor and a pleasure to talk. Uh, same, same to you, same for me. It has been a pleasant talking to you too. Um, and thank you to everyone who's willingly let their ears be bent by us for the last hour or so. If you want to get in touch with the show and have your questions answered in upcoming episodes, please get in touch via Twitter or email us direct at hello at calltoaction.co. I can't get no call to action. And I try, and I try, and I try.